2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord, we are very much aware of our need for your assistance in every aspect of life. And even after reading that section of Scripture, we're reminded of how we need your assistance in interpreting it and understanding how it applies to our life. We do not want to be ignorant nor unstable. And so I pray that you would assist me as I preach your word, that it would be understandable and clear And that each one of us would be encouraged and challenged and built up in the faith so that we would grow. That we would grow to be more like your son. That is our great aim. And I pray that you would accomplish that even now. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Most Christians understand that their goal in interacting with an unbeliever is to love them. And just as uh, P, um, sorry, Chris was saying uh, in his testimony he was just giving, um, our aim is not just to love them, but it's ultimately to seek for opportunities to share the gospel. And so we're at work or we're with friends, and we're seeking those opportunities out to lead them ultimately to Christ. But what do you do after you've had that gospel conversation, after that person has admitted their sin, they've admitted their need for a Savior, they've confessed that they want to repent from their sin and they believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save them and they want to follow after Him. Maybe you pray, but then what? What do you tell them? I think most of us would point to the need to, for them to begin reading the Bible and to pray and and probably point them to their need to be involved in a local church to help them grow. And that's, that's, that's good, but then what? How do you help them concisely and, and clearly understand what it is that Christ is calling them to do in following after them, following after him? Is there a passage that you could take them to that would concretely help them understand what it is that they're called to do? Well, I think this passage, these final words of Peter in Second Peter, is an excellent passage to bring people to. And I think it will be an excellent tool in such a situation. And then in this final section, Peter concludes his calling uh, of fellow believers to make sure they're doing five particular things. 
So as he summarizes this letter, he gives really five things that he wants his fellow believers to make sure that they're doing. And these things are foundational. They should be typical of the Christian life. They're something we should all be about. And so in order to make this um, understandable, um, I, I, I broke it, the outline down into five points, and I, and I tried to make it memorable. And you'll notice that the outline could actually form an acronym, D-E-S-U-S, which is really close to Jesus, but not quite. And the reason it's not J-E-S-U-S is because it would cumbersomely make me have to change the first point to judgment Christians diligently prepare for. But I know from school that we're not supposed to end a sentence on a preposition. Such bad grammar as Winston Churchill once said is the sort of bloody nonsense up with which I will not put. So we won't do that. We'll, we'll keep it as it is. But I hope it still helps to serve you because you can easily put judgment there. And, and, I, and I don't do that so much to be cute. I, I do it to be memorable. I want you to be able to think of these five things readily when somebody says, what is it that a Christian does? And again, it could be an unbeliever. It could be a friend. It could be somebody from another religion. And you could uh, easily just take them right here to Second Peter or you could list off uh, J-E-S-U-S. This is what Christians do. And it's not an exhaustive list. That is, Christians obviously do many other things, um, like they're involved in the local church, they, they take the Lord's Supper, they're, they do other things, but I think it's a good place to start. So let's begin by looking at verse 14. The first thing it mentions that Christians do is that they diligently prepare for judgment. They diligently prepare for judgment. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So each of the five principles that Peter's about to address are rooted in what he has just been writing about, what Chad actually preached on last week. And that's signified by the first word, therefore. So Peter has just been declaring the reality that Christ is in certainty going to come back. He's going to come again, and he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. All people will be judged. The wicked will be eternally punished, and the righteous will enter into eternal life. And so he says, in light of this return, we also need to live lives of holiness and godliness. Look back at verses 11 and 12. He writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And so you see, actually, verse 14 is just a repetition of verse 11. The point is, Christians are to be waiting expectantly, looking forward to this event. They recognize the reality of Christ's return, and not only that, but that's their focal point. That is, that is the reason for why they live. And you can tell how much a Christian really expects this based upon how they live their lives. The more they really expect it, the more diligently they will prepare for it. Peter uses the word diligent. It means to do something with intense effort and motivation. To work hard, to do one's best at an endeavor. 
And they're to diligently strive to be without spot or blemish and at peace. So although these are physical terms, Peter's not t- being, he's not talking about them physically being without spot or blemish. He's not saying you can't go out and get a tattoo. That's not his point. What he's actually drawing on is sacrificial imagery that when lambs were offered up to the Lord as a sacrifice, they were supposed to be without spot or without blemish so that they would be acceptable. They weren't supposed to have any sort of obvious imperfection to them. And that point is clarified by the statement that he made earlier in his first letter. And if you just flip in your Bibles back a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. So back to 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so the point that Peter is making by using these words, he's saying, you need to diligently strive to be like Jesus, who is without spot or blemish. That is, when Christ comes back, there should be nothing inwardly or outwardly of which you would be ashamed of. And the fact that future judgment is in mind is confirmed by the phrase that Peter uses, to be found, he says, be diligent to be found by him. And that's actually the word eurisco, where we get the English word eureka, which means to, to discover something, either intentionally or accidentally. And so when Jesus Christ comes back and discovers us, he examines us, what will he find? It's actually the same, verse, uh, same word he uses in verse 10, where it's translated exposed. And Peter here is making a conceptual link by, by using the same word in both verses. And it clarifies this point. When the heavens disappear and the earth and its inhabitants are stripped bare before the throne of God, Christians will want to know that their lives are pure and that they have nothing to hide. So knowing that everything's going to be exposed on that day, you want to be found without anything to hide. Upright. Blameless. And Jesus made... The same warning when he was speaking about his second coming, when he was telling his disciples about them to prepare for his return. And he says this in Matthew 24, verse 45. Matthew 24. He said this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servant and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So preparing for Jesus' return by living lives of holiness also actually is preparing us to be at peace. Jesus wants us to be looking forward to this, obviously, and to be at peace. That there is, there's nothing that we're anxious about when our lives are exposed before him. So it's referring to that spiritual peace, the inward effect upon a person's soul when they know that they have nothing to hide. See, even today, when there's a trial, and a, per, a person's on trial, and they, and they go before a jury and a judge, they prepare themselves as best as they can for that trial. And they get dressed up in order that they might appear honorable, or that they would be handsome or beautiful. Their hair is styled. They're wearing fashionable clothes. They look as if they are people who have nothing to be ashamed of, that they're respectable. And they want it because they want to do everything they can to get a favorable judgment. And although that this is just a superficial attempt to convince the judge of their innocence, we know that at that day we are going to go before the God who knows all things. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it describes Christ as eyes, who, who, his eyes are like a, a flame of fire. And that's represented the fact that he sees everything and his eyes are looking towards judgment. See, God's going to judge our hearts as well as our actions. So this isn't just about putting on a superficial show. This is about everything in our life wanting to be like Christ. And for those who have no advocate... To plead on their behalf, they will be condemned. But the great hope that we have as Christians is that we do have an advocate. And I love that song that says, Five bleeding wounds he bears and pleads on our behalf. In the letter of First John, John wrote to his friends these words, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we're his sons, we have his righteousness. We have Jesus' righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But the one who keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. You prepare for judgment, seeking to be holy and without blemish. Not because you doubt that Christ's righteousness is sufficient. It's not about doubt. It's because you believe it and you want to honor him. It's by pursuing a righteous life. It's preparation for judgment. Because you want to honor God. You don't want to have anything to be ashamed of. And so Christians diligently prepare for judgment now. And the second thing Peter mentions that Christians do is they seek to bring the good news to lost sinners around them. Seek to bring the truth that they can have an advocate. We Christians know we have an advocate when that judgment comes. But those without Christ have nothing. They have nothing to plead on their behalf. And so it's our obligation to go and share that they can be saved from that judgment through Christ. And they do this because they understand God's desire to save. 
which is the second point in verse 15, when Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That word patience is actually the word long-suffering. And that's what's going on. Christ is suffering as he waits to enact judgment. He wants to enact judgment. So you ask, why would he wait? Why doesn't he pour out his wrath upon an evil world? Well, he's patiently enduring the rebellion and patiently enduring it so that, until he can make things right because he wants to save. As Peter says, we're, we're to count, that is, consider or recognize that the reason for Jesus' patience is he wants to save sinners. And this is clearly not talking about our salvation, or else it wouldn't make any sense. It's referring to those who, who Christ still desires to save. And this is confirmed when we recall the fact that in verse 9, it says that he does not wish any, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that's the only reason that Christ is waiting. The only reason Jesus hasn't come to establish his kingdom and to enact judgment is because there are still people he wants to save. In fact, the reason each one of us is saved is because Christ has been patient. Because if he had returned 50 years before, we might not have that hope. 20 years before, 10 years before. He still wants us. He wants his people to repent. And if the Lord is long-suffering as he waits for others to come to salvation, we should be as well. We should be willing to endure what it takes as we seek to plead with those whom we love to come to repentance. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that, is in, uh, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Just as Christ endures as he waits for the sake of the elect. In verse 6 of chapter 3, Peter referenced this, that the worldwide flood that came upon the earth is God's judgment upon his rebellious creatures in Noah's time. And for the sake of illustration, consider that you are one of those people that was outside the ark when rain began to fall and floodwaters began to rise. And imagine that in mercy and compassion, God told Noah and his sons, okay, you have 30 minutes. If you, you can bring with you as many people as you can save with life preservers or with ropes, you have 30 minutes and that's it. And imagine that you were one of the first people to be reached. You're brought on board the ark. And so knowing that there was only minutes left for the rest of your friends and family, would you simply go inside the ark, take off your wet clothes, dry them, go sit in front of the fire, warm your hands, get some hot cocoa and sip it as the rain continues to fall outside? As you know, Noah and the rest of his family are desperately trying to save all that they can. 
Of course not. You would join the efforts. You would join the efforts knowing that there's just a little bit amount of time left. And that's why in the last part of verse 15, Peter's reminder to his Christian friends is the same thing that Paul would also warn in his letters, that Christians would prepare for judgment, knowing that it's coming. And knowing that there's just a little bit of time left. We don't know how much time. There's only a little bit of time left. But Peter recognizes that some people will actually twist the words of Scripture, as he says. They'll twist his warnings or Paul's warnings into saying something that was never intended. And so in his third exhortation to these believers, he says that they're to study accurately so they could interpret the Scriptures rightly. He writes in verse 15, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now the actual command in this section is seen in the middle of verse 17. Take care that you're not carried away by the error of these lawless people. That is, you want to have a proper understanding of what the Scriptures say. And there are a couple other things worth pointing out as well. First note that Peter recognizes that Paul writes, or Peter, Peter recognizes that Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And yet, Peter was an apostle. And so we can take comfort as we come across difficult texts that don't make immediate sense to us that we're in good company. That, that it's okay if not everything is clear to us. But the fact that some of the scriptures are hard to understand does not mean that they're not meant to be understood or that it's okay to interpret them wrongly. It doesn't make them any less truthful or any less important. It just means they're hard. They're going to take a little more effort. The fact that we're still expected to come to the right interpretation is confirmed by the fact that Peter's main point in, these, uh, in this section here is that we need to make sure we don't make any errors, that we do come to the right interpretation. And notice that those who do err in their interpretation are called ignorant and unstable. The word ignorant describes people who have never had a formal education. They're unlearned. And unstable describes their tendency to change and waver their views and their attitudes according to whatever that feels right at the time. And so they misinterpret not only Paul's letters, but he says all the scriptures because they never learned how to accurately interpret the Bible. And lacking that foundation, lacking that objective standard on which to see what's true, they're easily persuaded by various interpretations. They'll, they'll listen to anything that sounds right. Whatever appeals to them. Not because they're the right interpretations. They don't believe it because that's what it's saying. They believe it just because it sounds right to them. And so Peter says they twist the scriptures to have them say what they want them to. Not because that's what the scriptures actually say. It's using that word twist. Very, very picturesque. It's actually 
um, it, it describes the act of torturing a person upon the rack to twist their body. And when some poor victim under torture is forced to say what their torturers want them to say, that's the point. It's well known in the military that if you get caught and you're taken hostage, your captors are probably going to torture you to accomplish one of two things. One, they want you to give up valuable information that would lead to you know, some strategic operation. Or they want you to say something that would condemn the efforts of your government and their military operations in that area. And the reason they're going to torture you is because they recognize that you will never intend to say what they want you to say. You wouldn't do that on your own free will. And so to get you to say what they want, they twist you. They torture you so you say what they want you to say. Peter's point is that's exactly what we do. when We try to get the Bible to say what we want rather than interpreting it according to the author's intention. So people torture it and tell them what they want. The third thing I want to point out in these verses is that Peter calls Paul's letters Scripture. And Paul's a contemporary of Peter's. And this is an important text in understanding canonicity, how we came up with Scripture. Because even before Paul died, his contemporaries recognized what he wrote was Scripture. It was on par with the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Genesis. His letters were the very words of God. In fact, the word Scripture that's used is this word, and it's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament to describe Scripture. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all Scripture, same word, is breathed out by God. In fact, that word actually means God breathes. He's saying, all Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter's saying, Paul's letters... Letters, obviously, that some of them, at least, that we have now, they're Scripture. They recognized immediately they were Scripture. This was God's Word. And the fact that the Scriptures are God word, God's Word demands that we approach it with care. Demands that we're careful to interpret it correctly. And this is something that's especially demanded of teachers and preachers. As Paul said earlier in 2 Timothy Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That that phrase, rightly handling, means to cut it straight. Cut it accurately, not jaggedly, but appropriately. Cutting it straight, cut it straight, the word of truth. But it's also an expectation of every Christian. It's not just an expectation of pastors and teachers. It's an expectation of every, every Christian, which is... Peter's point. Peter's not just writing to elders and pastors here. He's writing to just the general congregation. Right? And he says in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So there's this expectation we all need to know how to uh, uh, interpret the, correct, the, the scriptures accurately. And this is why it's so dangerous for a person to ask this question in a Bible study. What what does this scripture verse mean to you? It is such a dangerous question 
Because to ask such a question is really to invite the torturing of God's word. You're asking that person to make the scripture say what you want him to say, essentially. There's nothing noble in that. It's totally appropriate to ask a question like, what do you think this scripture is saying? Or how do you think this scripture applies to you? But to suggest that meaning in a text is rooted upon a personal impression is like asking somebody to torture it. Like one member of ISIS saying to another member after they've captured this hostage and they say, all right, what do you, what, what do you want to get them to say? Or what, what can we make them say? How would you like to use this hostage? God's word is something we've got to be so careful with. And so it's because of that, in God's sovereignty, just, just last weekend I was having lunch with Chris Merkel, and he, he actually asked me, uh, would you guys be willing to have a, a hermeneutics class, a, a class on how to interpret the Scripture rightly, Bible study methods and, and that sort of thing? And I said, well, actually we would. And so uh, Chris is actually in the process of developing a class on the interpretation of Scripture, how to, how to the, the principles behind interpretation and then just Bible study methods. And so that's something we'd actually like to roll out. And so what an excellent opportunity. If that's not something you've been trained in, it's vital for you. Try to take advantage of that. This principle to rightly interpret the Scripture is intimately tied to the next point as well in verse 18. And that the way we guard ourselves from false interpretation of Scripture is that we need to grow in grace and knowledge. Peter writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, just as every child is designed to grow, every child of God is designed to grow as well. That is, we're supposed to grow up into Christ-likeness. This is the point the author of Hebrews makes in chapter 5 of his book, in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. His point is, you need to, be, you need to have a better grasp of the word of God, the, the fundamentals, before you're able to tackle some of these more difficult things. But that's part of this Christian growth. The expectation is you're supposed to grow. The spiritual growth of believers was the aim of all of Paul's ministry. He writes in Colossians 1.28, It is Jesus we proclaim, warning and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every person mature in Christ. That is, that they may be Christ-like. That's his aim. When he taught, when he prayed in all of his ministry, his point was to see them develop into Christ-likeness, to grow up into Christ. It was also Paul's personal pursuit as well. He writes in Philippians 3.12, regarding this spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. It's the same word, mature. Not that I'm already mature, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So how are we supposed to grow? How do we grow spiritually? Well, in Colossians 1.28, Paul said he did this by warning every man and teaching every man. The author of Hebrews implied that it was through the study of scriptures as well. And this is also what Peter suggests when he says we are to grow in grace and in knowledge. Grace, very simply put, grace is the power to carry out God's will. It's the power God gives us to obey him. And knowledge is the understanding of God's will. So he says the way we grow in power to obey and understanding of how to obey is implication in this, in this knowledge. So the call to grow is really a call to grow in understanding God's will, both in knowledge of the word of God and in living it out. So we read the Bible and then seek to live out what we read, and that's how we grow spiritually. And the reality is we all desire to grow. But what I'm, not, I'm not talking about we all desire to grow physically. The youngest of us, I think, do. But we all desire to grow in some sense. When we wake up in the morning, think about this. What is it that you want to grow in each day? Is it that you, do you want to grow financially? Is your aim to grow healthier? To grow more efficient and organized? Is your aim to, to strengthen your GPA or your scholastic opportunities? Is it to grow in others' esteem and respect? Or is it just to, to grow in the amount of friendships that you have? To grow socially? All of us desire to grow. And, and growing in all these areas is good. We should want to grow in these areas. But as a child of God, your number one priority is to grow into Christ's likeness. That is the main thing that should be upon your mind when you wake up in the morning. I want to grow in grace and in knowledge. And unlike the previous four points, this final point that we'll get to on your outline is not a command. But it's implied in the last statement. Peter says, the end of verse 18. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Final point is seek the Lord's glory. And to explain this point, I actually want to go back to that discussion about wanting to grow, about maturity. See, one of the signs of a, of a maturing child is they grow in self-awareness. Right? They, they be, they, at some early age, they begin to recognize, I'm an individual and I have a say in things. And they recognize they have some sort of influence. And so they begin to demand their own way, talking about what they want. And they, they want to be noticed. They don't, they're not as concerned about you uh, thinking well of them as much as they care about people just knowing their presence is there or they would just want you to know what their opinion is. They don't really care what your opinion is of them. They just want you to know what their opinion is of the situation. And as people grow and move into their teenage years, they begin to grow in an awareness of other people. They become starkly aware of other people's opinions, other people's preferences, particularly their opinions and preferences about themselves. 
And unlike the early child, they not only want to be noticed, but they want to be well thought of. They want people to like them. And one of the signs of a teenager truly maturing into adult is that they begin to recognize just not just other people's opinions, but they begin to recognize other people's needs. And the more aware of others' needs they become, the more they mature. And that's why there's such a great leap in maturity when a young man goes from being a bachelor to becoming a husband. He's obviously much more aware of of his wife's needs. And then again, from going from being a husband to being a father, because the needs abound and needs that he has to take care of. And so it's easy to conclude that as a person matures, a truly mature person is going to be the person who continues to put other people above himself. As Jesus said, do to others as you would have them do to you. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, consider one another as more important than yourself. But this isn't really the height of human maturity. The aim, the height of human maturity is God awareness. And what I mean is that you are more concerned with how people think and about and honor God than you are about yourself. That that is what you're aware of. That we would be so aware of God's opinion, God's will, God's desires, God's honor and glory that we wouldn't consider ourselves at all. That we would be more offended when God is dishonored than when we are dishonored. That we'd be more bothered when his word is twisted than when our words are twisted and misunderstood. That we'd be more grieved when his will is not done, not just when what we want to happen doesn't happen. That his honor and glory becomes more precious and valuable to us than anything else in the world. And we must recognize, as John the Baptist did, when people began to leave his ministry to follow after a better teacher. That account is in John chapter 3, verse 25. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and, and people are going after him. And John answered, A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. I think that's the goal of those who truly seek the glory of God in their lives. Let's pray. We do want that glory, God, and You know that we really struggle to honor You as we should. We are prone to self, to think of ourselves, to think of our own desires, our own wants, But as we grow in understanding you and your character and your word, we are so deeply moved to see that you are, you alone are worthy 
of all glory and honor and praise. And so we struggle. Father, help us to love You more than we love ourselves. To seek Your glory. And help us to live out all these principles that we would grow in every single one of these areas. That we would not rest. That we would passionately and diligently pursue holiness as we prepare for that judgment day. Lord, we, we would passionately pursue evangelism with the lost, that we would recognize that the time is short and we'd understand your desire to save people, that we would diligently study the scriptures to make sure that we're interpreting it rightly. Lord, that we would continue to grow in grace and in knowledge. And Lord, that we would also seek your glory above all things. We ask these things in your name.